Hi everyone and welcome to the first Dead Current podcast of the year. My name's Ingrid and I'm the podcast and interview coordinator of Durham's History in Politics Society. Uh, yeah, hi, I'm Ethan. Um, I'm president of History and Politics Society. So today we're joined by two of our recent article contributors, Matthew and Emily. Um, and just before we get into discussing their articles, I'd just like to mention some of the great opportunities within the society. So we have a blog where anyone can send in articles of around 500 to 800 words on any topic relating to history and politics. Um, we also publish a journal every term of students' essays of around three to 4,000 words. Um, this term's journal is called Mentalities, and you can find more information about this on the Instagram or the website. And um, what's exciting about this is that it's a really good opportunity to improve your writing skills whilst having your work published in a respected journal. So first, turning to Matthew, whose article is called The National Governments of the 1930s, Short-Term Success but Long-Term Failure. So Matthew, please could you give us a summary of your blog post and your main arguments? Um, yeah, of course. Um... My blog post sort of sets up the discussion around the efficacy of the national governments in the 1930s, um, with the main argument being, although they had long term, um, like short term successes in maintaining their governments and the political stability of the UK, they had longer term failures in the way that they set up um, fundamental discrepancies and uh, inequality in the UK. Um, so obviously the interwar period, um, in comparison to like a lot of periods of history, is fairly recent and it's obviously then a po popular area of research. So um, specifically for you, like what inspired you to write on this subject? Well, I mean, the politics of inequality is something that I've been interested in from, from sort of when I still started studying politics. I was born in Derbyshire and I moved to Durham when I was really young. So a lot of my political identity comes from like the cultures that I've been surrounded by. Um, so looking into inequality throughout British history, uh, especially modern British history, is something that really interests me. Um, I wrote on it at A-level. I thought I'd contribute a bit to the blog with a little post that I had. Um, and did you find that the UK government that you wrote about was very different from um, how other European countries were at the time? I mean, there definitely was difference, of course, because there's the significant lack of extremism that developed in the UK. Um, it's important to recognise that there was a grassroots movement towards extremism on both sides of the political spectrum. Um, evidence, you know, by the British Union of fascists. Mosley had a huge movement at the Olympia of 10,000 and there was severe membership for the BUF. Um, but it was a fairly niche group overall of extremists who were at the fringes of um, UK politics. So they didn't have a concrete base to, to get into the Houses of Parliament. Um, and a lot of that comes also from the political systems of the UK, of course. But I think fundamentally, the governments of the UK did a great job in seeing off extremism um, through their policy making. Do you think as well, like that was down to the kind of like lack of revolutionary feeling there's been in this country compared to, say, Germ like Germany or France? Yeah, I think that, that has a huge amount to it as well. The, I think there's a distinct lack of 
revolutionary culture in Britain throughout history. Um, although, of course, there have been massive revolutionary, well, massive, maybe an overstatement, but considerable revolutionary movements um, through Chartists and others who have suffragettes as well, who've pushed forward the boundaries of UK politics, but nothing as concrete as a French revolution, as an American revolution, as um, a rewriting of a German constitution. The British political culture seems to be fairly um, not, not rocking the boat, as it were. So your article also mentions the severe economic difficulties that the 1930s governments had to face, um, especially unemployment. So do you think that the history of these governments and the context of their economic situation is relevant today? Isn't like what can it what can the history teach us for now? Oh, well, I think there's a, a certain degree of relevance to how you cope with severe economic difficulties, but it's also important to recognise the the fundamental changes that Britain's gone through from the 1930s to now. In the 1930s, the policymaking was surrounding industrialization, keeping certain industries alive. Um, whereas now, the industries that they that they were trying to keep alive are, are dead, um, and there's been a huge amount of outsourcing from Britain. So it's it's very difficult to connect the decisions of the 1930s governments and their economic situation the economic situation that we face now because there's such a vast difference in in the economic situation of the uk um but it's still valuable to study it because how they coped in severe adverse circumstances is useful to know and look at um so yeah matthew you mentioned um regional um, disparities to quite a lot in um your blog um and obviously i'm still very relevant today um and um could you um expand on how the fa how the failures of the government um impacted um regional disparities further well i think it's not that they set up the regional disparities straight away. It's the fact that the the decisions of the national governments set up a culture in British politics that not readily ignores the issues that were faced in certain parts of the UK. But it, there's definite links between what happened in the 1930s and then what happened under Thatcher. Um, like the the deindustrialization process the process of um industries disappearing from areas of the uk um greatly comes from the roots that were set up by the 1930s um national governments uh i've again i've lived in durham a large chunk of my life and i know the 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 inequality that durham faces in comparison to other parts of the uk um and i think that culture was set up in the 1930s at least in part um not potentially deliberately but as a consequence of certain actions the the culture yeah developed so do you think that the current government could maybe take maybe like a leaf out of the national government's book of create like the short-term successes to for now i think again as i said it's so difficult to to equate the current economic situation of the UK to the economic situation of the UK in the 1930s. But there's, it's hard to draw 
economic policies out as you could in the 1930s. But I think it's a worthy lesson to learn that even in times of economic stress, don't ignore areas of severe deprivation, especially when those areas elected you for government in the last election. Um, When your mandate comes from areas that are deprived and you choose to ignore them, I think the governments are going to be in for the the current government's going to be in for quite a shock um, in the next election because of its already its blatant ignoring of um, of the areas that helped get it into office. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Thank you very much for talking about that. So now we're going to turn to Emily, whose summer article was called "Remoulding the Legacy of Barbie's Creator." Um, so yeah, it's quite different from talking about the national governments. Um, I think that shows like how broad like disciplines of history and politics are. Um, so yeah, in terms of writing for the uh, writing for the blog, you can really write on anything. So um, Emily's articles on um, Barbie's creator Ruth Handler. So Emily, please could you tell us a little bit more about who she is? Yeah, so she was born in 1916 um, to. Polish Jewish immigrants to the States and then moved to Hollywood where she founded Mattel, the toy company, and then created Barbie. And she had to really fight for it to be created because all of the male executives at Mattel didn't think that there was really going to be a market for this model mm-hmm. in a kind of industry that was dominated at the time by either paper dolls or the classic like baby dolls that girls just cared for basically um so she created barbie and changed the way that toys were marketed by marketing it instead of to the parents directly to the children and then she was also later diagnosed with breast cancer and had a mastectomy um resigned from mattel and her struggle to find realistic breast prosthesis um drove her to create nearly me which was a line of more realistic breast prosthetics for women who had survived breast cancer and she was also indicted with fraud and false reporting um, because Mattel fake bills and invoices so a very varied life yeah and interesting (laughs) um so in your article you kind of talk about like the criticism and the kind of controversy of Barbie um and I think like just looking at Barbie it's quite obvious kind of unrealistic beauty standards and kind of maybe a lack of diversity so I just wanted could you explain how feminists could perhaps view Barbie differently? Um, Yes I think here kind of historicizing Barbie is really important Um, and thinking about why it was created in the first place because it was really groundbreaking that a woman who created this and marketed it herself in such a male-dominated industry and also it was explicitly designed with the intent of empowering girls. Um, Ruth Pandler said that she thought it'd be good for girls' self-esteem to play with a doll with breasts and I think also thinking about now um, there are we've seen Barbie being more inclusive with kind of new ranges that aren't just the skinny blonde white doll which, yeah, as you said, exemplifies kind of those unrealistic standards. And on that, um, would you call, like, Barbie a feminist creation in that way? 
Yeah, I definitely would. I think it was really interesting actually coming at it from the perspective of not really knowing anything about Ruth Ambler and just knowing about Barbie and then looking at the roots of it. And actually it's not just the criticism that we have of it today. It, Ruth Ambler was like a really pioneering and impressive woman. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, just on what you were saying about Ruth Handler. So you were saying about how like the debate um, within like feminism over Barbie is like political. And then you also mentioned that Ruth Handler influenced the first lady. The first lady. Um, and I was just saying, could you just explain a little, little bit more about this and her influence on the first lady? Yeah. So um, Ruth Handler to market her breast prosthetic line. Um, went around on kind of talk shows and stuff and obviously gained a lot of publicity from this and then actually fitted Betty Ford who was the first lady at the time um her breast um prosthetics and Betty Ford I mentioned because yeah again she was a really kind of pioneering woman so at the time breast cancer still a very kind of taboo subject that wasn't really spoken about and after Betty Ford's press conference um, when she announced her diagnosis, there was a massive surge in the number of women who went for their breast cancer screenings. And it was actually called the Betty Ford Blip. So I think it kind of all links again to this idea of visibility and if people are seeing um, someone talking about it on such a public stage, then it brings it into the spotlight. Um, and would you argue um, from all the um, research that you did for your blog that um, Ruth Handler's creation of Barbie um, is still a relevant and um, important thing today? Um, yeah, I would think it is. Um, because, well, I think it's, you can see how relevant and significant it is just because it's still, like, creates these discussions and whether the discourse is kind of positive or negative about the criticisms of Barbie just the fact that people are having these discussions shows that it's significant and it's of an incredibly iconic figure um sales surge during Covid and I think there's a film being made about it now um so I think that also shows that you can take something that was quite problematic obviously Barbie and like the classic sense is quite a problematic figure but you can kind of modernise it um, and kind of bring it into the 21st century, depending on how you kind of interpret it. And do you think, like, the popularity of Barbie, Barbie is, like, sustainable? Do you think, you know, like, our grandchildren will, like, still have, like, Barbies? Um, <laughs> that's a really interesting question, actually. Um, and actually, the sales had been kind of declining, um, which would suggest that if not for the pandemic and people staying inside, maybe just no. But I think because Bobby is kind of being modernised, so perhaps, but it just depends on what form the Barbie figure will be, if that makes sense. Cool. Thank you for that. Um, so I'm now going to, to finish off today's podcast. I'm going to ask a question to both of the, both of the writers. Um, so firstly, back to Matthew, um, what kind of skills would you say you got from writing your article? And 
on that, what advice would you give to anyone who wants to do the same? I'd say I didn't, I don't know, I didn't really gain research skills. I sort of developed them because anything that you're writing for the blog is just a development of what you've been doing at university anyway. Um, but on that note, don't be afraid to apply and don't be af afraid to write for the blog or the journal. Um, it's not going to, someone's not going to send you back your work and scold you. Uh, it's a, it's a positive environment that you can just research anything that you are interested in or have been interested in um, outside of an academic framework to allow you to, you know, enjoy it a bit more, um, which is really, really positive. Yeah, it's quite nice to be able to write about something without be, being assessed on it. So you can just do what you want and explore yeah. what you want. Um, and yeah, and Emily, I would ask the same question. Ask the same question to you. So. Um, yeah, I think kind of linked to what you were saying. Um, it's always good. You're not necessarily getting new skills, but you know, it's always good to kind of keep your hand in with writing when you are doing an essay project. Um, and in terms of advice. I guess, yeah, the topics are so varied that don't be concerned that whatever you'd be interested in would be too niche because there's always going to be someone out there who read it and find it interesting. So just kind of go for it, yeah. Thank you. Um, so, yeah, so just thank you for both of you for coming on the podcast to talk about your articles. Um, I'm sure that our listeners would have found your chosen topics interesting and hopefully they too may be inspired to do the same. So yeah, thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you.